Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Anwemina, and I am super excited to be talking with you today because I have a special guest. Actually, Layla is not new to the show. She's been here before. She is a wonderful and amazing medical information specialist, also known as a librarian. And she, in particular, is here today because of her expertise in systematic reviews. In fact, she is chair of the Systematic Review Caucus for the Medical Library Association. And so she's here to talk to us today about systematic reviews. Layla, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me again. This is super fun. And I love talking about systematic reviews. Well, systematic reviews is definitely what we're talking about today. And I'm so glad that you're here because sometimes it seems as if it should be intuitive. You're doing a systematic review, just search the literature, pull the papers together, write the paper. It seems like it should be straightforward, but it's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. So I will start by saying when, when we first started working together, I had no idea about systematic reviews and how long it would take. My first thought when someone told me that it would take about six months to do a good systematic review was to laugh and say, why would anybody need so much time? I'm, I feel like a little bit wiser now, but I want you to just talk about what does it take to do a good systematic review, not just in terms of the time, the effort, but also the resource, the resources that you need in personnel and, and all, all things. Okay. Wow. This is a big question. So you may have to refocus me as we cruise through the answer to that. So maybe we can break it up into parts. So we kind of joke that systematic reviews are one of the research methods that nobody seems to go to the manual for. There's right, there's manuals and and checklists and and things to tell you how to do them, but nobody does that. They just decide that they're just going to launch themselves in, and then as they sort of cruise down the road, we're doing things. They're surprised by what's involved in it. So some of the things that we say, and you remember this at our first consultation where we sit down with a new team, is we ask people how many people are on their team. So we encourage the minimum, minimum, minimum would be two people, but we encourage you to include a librarian on your team to help you with your searches because you would prefer to have an expert do that than to do it yourself. It really ends up we can talk about that a little bit later. It ends up being very complicated. You're going to need, and we usually say six months at the minimum for an experienced team with a really tight question and enough like hands on deck because, right, you could end up with head teams of like 18,000 things to screen. So on an average, we actually say it takes about 12 months. And on the outside, kind of like 18 is not unusual. 
So that's because you have to figure out what your question is. You have to do the searches. You might end up having to refine your question, depending on how big your question is. It might be, you know, like 18,000 things. And that's about 200 things an hour. So if you divvy that up amongst your, right, it could take months and months and months just to get through your screening. And then you have to read the papers and then you have to, and you probably know this, but nobody thinks about it, is when you get to where you actually have to pull the data from the papers you've selected. That's the most time-consuming piece. And I feel like we should spend more time talking about, like, what are you going to collect and, and how are you going to collect it? How do you plan to normalize your data? And so, like, all these things. And in the meantime, you've got software and you have manuals and you have reporting guidelines of things that you have to meet in order to publish the work that you've done. It, there's just so many things in that whole process. Is that a good overview? Yes. No, it's good. It's good because what I'm hearing you say, and, and I'm so glad that you're communicating to the audience, is that this is not an, it's not just a walk in the park. This is not just to pull a couple of papers together and do a review. It really is systematic. There's a process to it. And it takes time and it takes energy. It takes people to do it as well. So speaking about people, your librarian, why should you involve your librarian in the systematic review? Aren't we just putting a few keywords into PubMed and finding a couple of papers? I love this. I mean, you can, but what we usually warn people, so a systematic review is a very defined methodology. And one of the reasons it is at the highest level of the pyramid, of your evidence pyramid, is that what you've said is we have gone out there and found all of the studies about this particular topic and, and we've done things to them. One of the things that also defines a systematic review is evaluating the quality of the articles. We can talk about that a little bit later. But you go out and you have to find all of that. And it's really embarrassing if you go to publish something and you have not found it. It's also a little bit dangerous because your, your audience trusts that you have found everything and that the recommendation you are giving with your paper is accurate because you have found everything. And you have worked with me and with other librarians and we're just used to, just like clinicians are, we're used to thinking about the problem within our scope of expertise in a really specific way. So we're used to thinking about the other ways topics are talked about. We're really, we have to do at least three databases for a systematic review. So we know the language and syntax for each one. We know how to pull back enough stuff, but not more than you can handle. There's all these little tips and tricks that come just with the expertise of, of searching for information. And that's your data that you base the rest of your paper on. So all the methodologies and stuff say we really recommend working with some sort of informationist in order to get the data that you then work on for the paper. So we that's help you collect awesome. your data. Yeah, that's awesome. So so you talk about the the need to be systematic. So so this is a research methodology. Systematically mm -hmm. searching the literature is a unique skill set. Is an it's it's just, it takes expertise to be able to do it well and make sure that you're systematically capturing all topic, all articles on that topic. Yes. And so in the same way as, as clinicians, we spend a long time trying to figure out how to do our clinical specialty. Well, as librarians, you take time figuring out how to do these systematic searches to the best of your ability. 
Yes. And, and I could teach someone if they wanted to spend the time practicing, just like any sport or skill, if you had the time and the, you know, opportunity to practice, then you could be just as good at it. It just, it really does take months to years to really learn all the tips and tricks and skills to, to end up doing that. And I continue to learn things from other experts who have figured stuff out. So and it, we're just like you guys in a way, just this, it's a clinical skill. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we started with team and as part of your team, you want at least two people, but probably more. And your librarian needs to be part of that team so that you can do a good systematic search. So we've got the team assembled. Now let's talk about the protocol. Why do you need to write a protocol before you get started? Why not just define the question and go? Yes. So I liken it to making a decision about where you go before you start the car and driving, right? So you, you know, type in your GPS and if you're smart, you'll like have a quick look to make sure it's taking you someplace that makes sense, right? You, instead of just being like, okay, and then getting to like where the bridge is out and how did I get here or the traffic's terrible or, or whatever, right? Um, so a protocol is your roadmap or your planning document for your project. So just like you would do a clinical trial, any kind of experiment you would set up how you plan execute all of those things. So then you have to stop every time you hit a, a, a place and say, now what do we do? Okay, we've done the search, now what? Okay, now we've loaded it in the software. Okay, now what? All right, now we're on to the next step, right? So it, you end up, if you don't have a protocol, kind of coming to a screeching stop. And it really slows down your flow. And I just feel like kind of knowing where you're going, what data you plan to collect, how you plan to evaluate the articles, all of that makes you actually better at the earlier steps. So really having a good idea of your final destination. And that's not just, well, I plan to do X, but like the things that you plan to collect and the way you plan to do it really makes a huge difference early on in the process. But have you found that to be the case now that you know where you're going <laughs> doing? So your protocol is that roadmap. It also, it's a little bit to keep you from cheating. <laughs> I mean this in the like nice way, just so that you can't just as you're cruising along and you realize this is not going the way I expected it to, which is like 50% of science, maybe more. You can't just pivot. It's supposed to keep you honest. You know, so this is what I said I was going to do. And because it's not working out the way I wanted it to, you can either quit and just opt not to, put, but you can't cheat and, and change it, right? The protocol keeps you honest. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I, I love the, what you say about it being the roadmap, what it allows you to do, because you're answering these questions as you're going through the protocol, it allows you to think early about challenges that you might face and address and decide how you're going to address them before you get to those challenges. So it's definitely very helpful. Now you can't just, you, so you put your protocol together, but you also have to register it. What is this thing about registering protocols? Can you speak to that? Yes, so there are, a protocol is also helpful because it helps you plant your flag in your topic. It lets people know, hey, don't even bother. We've already started working on this. Here's our question. Here's what we plan to search. And so you can go in and look at these registries and say, oh, 
Toyo, see, is working on this already. I'm going to find another aspect of this topic that I'm particularly interested in. So it saves you from wasting any time on a topic somebody else is already working on. It also saves you from having like a competing paper out there. It's just, that's better all around. So the registries are a little bit like registering a car. I mean, there's nobody really policing the quality of the protocols. There is a organization called Prospero. They are out of the University of York in the UK, and they will give you like a registration number for your protocol. And they do do like a quick look through to make sure that everything looks legit. You know, did you talk about what kind of data you're collecting? Did you say you were going to search a certain number of databases? It doesn't mean your systematic review is going to be any good, but they are checking to make sure you fit all the high points. So there is Prospero. They only accept systematic review registrations. There are other evidence syntheses like scoping reviews, rapid reviews. There's a ton of other types of evidence syntheses, and those will go into another registry. The most common one I use is the OSF, which is the Open Science Foundation, I believe. Uh, I can never remember what the F stands for, um, but they also accept registration and will give you a number and a DOI and, and copyright for it and all that good stuff. So that is a way for you to say, look, here is my a priori project. And this is how I planned to conduct it. We didn't talk about another thing that protocols do, which is a lot of journals now require protocols. If you're nodding your head, I actually had some poor team say that they tried to get their manuscript published and they hadn't registered a protocol and in the the journal they're the journal that they wanted to publish in was like, no, you needed it to do one. They're like, can we do one now? And I'm like, no, that has to be done ahead of time. Or you're out of luck, you're just going to have to find another journal. And that's happened enough times now that I try to warn people because it seems annoying, right? You know, why should I? I just like to get on with it. But yeah, so a lot of journals do. Keeps you honest, keeps you on track, lets you plan things out. It helps you plant your flag on your topic. Yeah, they're terrific. I'm a huge proponent of doing them. Absolutely. And my experience, they also give you feedback. They'll say, well, think again about your analysis. You haven't included X, Y, Z. So it actually is, is helpful feedback. So it's definitely the turnaround. Gosh, I feel like it's a couple of weeks to months, depending on how busy they are. Yeah, it can they be will really give slow. you feedback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's really nice. I have not heard. You've gotten the most useful feedback I've heard. A lot of times they're just like, this is not a good question. And, you know, and zoom it out. But it sounds like you got some really, I like hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that one experience we've had is where, I think they rejected the protocol. And then when we asked and said, what was the problem? Then they listed the issues and we were able to go back and fix those, which is good. Great. That's fabulous. I'm going to let my teams know that that I had not heard that. So that's great. There is actually a like a reporting. There are actually resources out there to help you do a protocol. So this again, and your librarian will help you again. You don't have to go into this not knowing what's going on. I heard from another clinician that I work with, we were asking him, you know, like, do you do protocols now? What is a barrier to this? And he said that if as a brand new person to systematic reviews, I had asked him to do a protocol, he would have, that would have been just too big of a hump to get over, that that was just too scary. 
but I, I'd like to tell people in your audience that it actually isn't that big of a deal and maybe you can reassure them. It's literally just kind of like an outline with things that you've, decisions you've made and thoughts you've had about your project. Did you want to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I will say that the most helpful resource I found, which I always go back to on our library website, is where there's a systematic review protocol template. And it's a series of questions. And you just answer the questions. And it makes it so easy. It helps you think about every aspect. So you're not really creating a protocol from scratch as much as answering a series of questions. And that becomes your protocol template. So that's that's been really helpful. Yes. And it doesn't, it's like a couple of hours, right? It's not days and days or months and months, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So now when I work with trainees who are working on systematic reviews, that's the first thing I give them is here's the template, go fill this out. And then we have <laughs> conversations around it, which is great. Yeah, it's, it's really, I love hearing you talk about it because it's sometimes a struggle to get teams to want to do it. it. Again, it's the reading the manual. There's the people who read the manual and the people who do not. And and I know about this because you taught me well. <laughs> and let's talk about let's talk about the conversation with the librarian. When you okay. say, I want to do a systematic review and I have this protocol, what information do you need to get to your librarian other than the protocol? We don't always actually require the protocol from the get-go. It's nice if you do, if you've done that work ahead of time. And you have lovely teams that almost always do this. And so, But a lot of people just arrive on my doorstep with their like, little bag that says, you know, I want to do a systematic review. We almost always talk about um, their question. So that is probably, you might agree with this, probably the biggest struggle is really refining your question. I always warn people, you're not writing a textbook. This isn't the Moby Dick of systematic reviews. You have to include all the things. In fact, it's actually better, at least in my opinion, is these like sports car systematic reviews, small and fast, so that you can then have another one and you can get that published, right? You can get it done in six to 12 months, get that published. You can start working on another one. But the people who want to do these like big warship of uh, systematic reviews, I'm like, oh, it's going to take you forever. And by the time you finish that, somebody else will have published it. <laughs> so let's, let's try to keep it fast, like a sports car. So we talk to them about their question and like find out what's, how much information is out there. Should we make the question bigger? Sometimes we have to, or do we have to make it smaller? We ask them for what papers they already know exist for their topic. That is exceptionally helpful for a lot of reasons. One, it lets the librarian, we use it a lot. We use it to sort of get to know your topic. We use it to gather search terms, both those mesh terms that everybody's always talking about, the subject headings, and also other ways your topic is talked about. It lets us check our searches so we can make sure that the articles you know you want to include in your systematic review are pulled up in the search. There's just so many ways we can use it. It's very, very helpful. So we'll ask for the question. We'll ask for those example article, maybe like exemplars or what I usually tell people is articles you expect to include in your in your final set. And more than five would be helpful, but if you've got three, you've got three. Did you know that you can publish a systematic review with nothing in it? 
Tell me more. I know. Isn't that interesting? So we just published one. You can, this usually happens when a team is asked to do a review on a particular topic and then they go digging and they don't find anything that meets their criteria. And so it ends up being a empty review. What this particular team just recently happened did is they, it was a mental health one. So they used it as a call to action look, nobody is doing this work. We should be, you know, developing um, studies and testing if this, if this works, if this intervention works. So that was fascinating. So don't be scared off. And I've also had a review that had three articles in it. Don't be scared off by a, a small amount of of reviews. Now, it has to be an interesting enough topic that people will be interested. There's nothing in it, right? Like that was, uh, if you know, so what about salamanders, I guess, you know, but that particular thing was really, really, I thought, a glaring hole in the research. And so they did get that published and it was very interesting. So yes, you can have zero. And I would not encourage you to do more than, how many of you, have you had a lot in your reviews? Have you had like more than 50? Rarely, rarely. I think that, I feel like the numbers in my head are anywhere from 11 to probably the most we've had is 32. Yeah, I try to encourage people to like stay under the 50. So if you're like, there are hundreds of papers out there about this particular question, then I would usually tell people, you might want to break your question. We might want to focus more. Mm -hmm. um, part of that is you're going to have to mention, let's say there's a 250 papers. This has happened to one of my teams. We have 276 papers, they said, in our final set. And I'm like, you're going to have to write about all 276 papers in your manuscript. That's going to have to go in a table in your manuscript. You're going to have to quality assess all 276. You're going to have to data extract it. That's going to have to go in your references. Will your journal even allow you to have 276 things in your references? And they're like, oh. So we talked about like what they could do to narrow their topic. And one of the things they did was they actually decided on their follow-up time for this particular thing. And once they decided on a narrower follow-up time, whoop, that scooched right down to 35 papers, which is perfect in my opinion. That is great. So one of the things I hear you talking about is really your librarian as your partner in this process. Not, not just the person who comes and searches and, and then mm -hmm. is done, but really a partner. And so in thinking about the partnership, so you help with the search, your co-authors run off and they do the title and abstract screening. And then they're like, well, we found these maybe 72 articles that we think meet inclusion criteria. And now we actually have to go find the articles. How are you helpful at that point? So one of the things that we can do is we can use software to help pull articles for that for your manuscript. So let's say there's 76 of them. So we can use EndNote or Zotero to use our proxy to pull as many of those as it can. As you may have experienced, it's not always super accurate at that. So we usually figure it gets about 50% of that. And then there's like another 50% that you have to go pull by hand or in order via document delivery interlibrary loan. 
if there's a lot of papers, what we'll all usually do is we'll sort of divvy it up amongst the team. And so everybody goes and pulls 20 papers or something like that so that it not it doesn't land all on one poor person. So that's one thing that we do. We also, the library provides a free document delivery. So if we can get the paper for you from somewhere else besides Duke that we will. And, and you should do that when you're doing a systematic review. If it's not at Duke, you are sort of obligated to go get it if you possibly can at another institution. Leaving it out just because we don't have it in full text is is not a legitimate thing. And I actually do, I'm a reviewer for a lot of journals, right? I'm the librarian methodology expert. And if I see that in a manuscript, it's a very quick reject. Now, speaking of leaving out papers, one thing that I see that, that I struggle with is the language, the language thing. So if something is not in English, how do you decide what to do with that? What is the best practice versus kind of like what's most practical? Okay. So I am a huge fan of including as many people as you can on your team. So a multidisciplinary, multinational team is fantastic because then you have native speakers that can then go and translate those papers. We always keep all languages in the search. And this is so that you're not doing, you know, a Western bias in your search for information. Great research is done in China. Great research is done in Africa. Great research is done in Germany. You can't just because they don't speak English as a primary language that they can write a scientific paper in doesn't mean it isn't good science. So it's very rude of us to be like, yeah, they wrote it in German and they're probably not worth looking at, right? That's So we try not to have that sort of English language bias. So we include it in the search so that you can at least have a look at it. What most people do is they don't end up, unless they have someone on their team that speaks the language, they don't end up using those papers because it's very expensive to have them translated, several thousand dollars a paper. I have a friend who does this, so I got the skinny from her and she's like, yes, very expensive. Um, So we don't usually do that, but you've shown, you're like, look, there's this paper in Polish and there's this paper in Afrikaans and they really seem, because the title and abstract are in English, they really seem to address our question, but we didn't have the resources. Now, if you know you're going to be doing it, maybe scoop a little bit of money in your grant office to do translations. But if this is a surprise SR and you didn't have funding for it, what you can say is here are the papers that we really think would be useful. And if someone in your audience wants to spend the money to translate, they can. Or if they speak the language, they can go have a look at it. But you're that you're addressing that it's there and not just ignoring it. I usually encourage people to put in like a little table that said these are some papers that were interesting and we couldn't translate them, but look, we found them. And I think that just makes the team look great because you're trying really hard to minimize the bias in your review. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that perspective, for giving us the ideal and the practical. Now, the I think the last question I want to ask is about authorship. Okay, your librarian's done all this great work, and then you go to write the paper. How should you be thinking about including your librarian as a co-author with you in the process? I love that you asked this. Bless you. (laughs) 
so we're right if you think about and i guarantee that if anyone works with a librarian you're going to definitely want to give them authorship because we do quite a bit of work we're not just you know it doesn't take us five minutes to run the search and then you never see us again we help you with all your methodology we help you make decisions about what risk of bias tool you might want to use right all those things plus we will write up your methodology for you for the bits that we do so we can say this is how we conducted our search we provide you reproducible searches that are transparent that can go in your supplementary material i offer a lot of advice for a lot of other pieces of the review i offer a lot of advice on data extraction here's what i would do here's best practices so we usually just say you know we're a team member we don't have to be in on all the nitty-gritty things because i don't know anything about hematology or whatever your particular topic is you don't want me screening you don't want me data collecting because I don't know what I'm doing. But I will be there to help you with the entire like process of doing a review. So I think that work, I think genuinely, a lot of times we're even part of conceptualizing your question. So I do think that that helps us deserve being part of the author team. Um, and most of my teams have said, oh, absolutely. You, we feel like you've deserved it. I've, sometimes every now and again, I'll have one that was just super, super easy and they didn't need me. And I'm like, you don't have to include me. So if I feel like I didn't do the work, I'll say, have at it. You don't need me on this. But I feel like it also makes your review look really good. Look, we used a professional librarian. So there's been someone here sort of keeping an eye. And then one of the things that I do is I go through the manuscript at the very end because I'm also a reviewer. And I say, this is what I look at when I'm asked to look at a review. What? things did you hit? What things are missing? And so I feel like just that helps us sort of get over the finish line to publication. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm thinking my final question has to do with tools. What are some favorite tools, software tools, those kinds of tools? Oh gosh, we have some really cool ones. So at Duke, we subscribe to software called Covidence which is a systematic review screening software, but also helps with the data extraction. Uh, it doesn't do it for you. We have not gotten there yet. Oh, people always ask me that. They're like, does it do it for you? And I'm like, not yet, not yet. But we're, people are working on it. They're trying. But it does really help with the sort of data management of your systematic review. So helps you, your yes and no's, tagging things, deciding on your criteria, all that stuff. And it provides a really pretty Prisma flow diagram for you at the end and all the good stuff, plus forms for kept, keeping all your, collecting all your data and keeping it all in one ecosystem. So we love that software. There is other software out there. And we just happen to have this one. We find this to be the most user-friendly. Other tools I really like to use are, there is, this is super nerdy, but there is a software out there called the Polyglot Translator, which allows us to take the initial search that we do and you, it will translate it for you. It doesn't do a spectacular job. <laughs> uh, there's things it doesn't do for you, but it does actually save some time with syntax. So I teach some of the students about this and I say, here's the things you're going to have to look out for. But if you don't want to work with a librarian, this will sort of get you halfway there. There is a super cool tool out there called Citation Chaser. 
So one of the things that you're expected to do is when you get your final set of papers, so let's say we have 10 papers at the end, you're expected to look through the references of that. We, it used to be called hand searching, but what they now call it, I've heard a lot of different things. I call it forward and backward citation searching. So you look through the papers just to sort of make sure that there isn't anything living in the references that might fit your topic. But then there's also papers out there since, let's say, there's a paper that was done in 2004, and it's been cited by 15 other papers. You'll want to make sure that you've looked at those 15 papers to see if they have, if they answer your question. There's a software out there. There's a couple of them. The one I like is called Citation Chaser, and you can actually just put in the DOI of the papers, and it will go get all the references and all the cited papers. And, and then you can just turn around and drop it into that software, that Covident software, and it keeps track of everything. I just, it's really, really nice and it's super easy to use. So yes, those are some faves. There's some other ones I like to use. Those are the ones that I think are probably used the most often. That's awesome. Citation Chaser is one I hadn't yeah. heard. So that's, that's pretty awesome. Thank you. Next time when you hit that spot, we will, we will touch it. We will touch it. I, I'll All show right. you how. Now, for anyone who's, as we're coming to the end of the podcast, I'm just wondering what major thing about, about systematic reviews haven't we talked about that you want to highlight? Or maybe we've talked about it and you just want to emphasize it. We haven't really talked about the process of doing risk of bias or quality assessment with papers. That We mentioned it super briefly, but that's one of the defining characteristics of doing a systematic review. And I find that a lot of teams don't realize that that has to be done. You can choose to do um, a review and not do the quality assessment risk of bias, but you may not call it a systematic review at that point. So you can call it a literature review, a narrative review, a state of the art something, but you may not call it a systematic review without doing that risk of bias portion. And what that is, is just looking at the paper and and making sure you can only tell what they reported. But they're, it's relatively easy. There are a checklist usually that says, you know, did they ask a good question? Did they, I'm, I'm gonna use randomized controlled trials as an example. Did they randomize? Was the allocation blinded? You know, uh, how did they crunch the data? Was, you know, all those kinds of things, just so you can look at how well conducted, this is really just how well reported a study was. And so that way, when you're summarizing everything at the end, you can say, and you have to include, I've seen this done, but people will throw out the poor scores. And I'm like, no, 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 because you don't do that either. Um, it's a little bit like getting rid of patients that don't do well in your study. But this is no, no, no bueno. <laughs> um, no, you still want to report on them because someone might say, well, I thought that Smith article was great. And you're like, no, actually, we looked at the Smith article and there's like really some weaknesses, some really a high chance of bias creeping into the paper because of X, Y, or Z. Um, so that portion is actually really, really important. Um, and then you can say, look, the quality of um, the research done on this topic is really quite good. Or it's middling or, you know, nobody's doing really high quality research on this yet. So it's just a, another portion of a review that makes it, a systematic review that makes it super valuable. If you do a scoping review, you do not have to do it. But that, whether or not it's a scoping or a systematic review, really depends on your question. And a librarian can help you sort that out. 
That is super awesome. I've, I've learned new things today, Layla. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> well, yeah, that's been a, it's been a great, great discussion about systematic reviews. I want to thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise. I wonder, but why is there a caucus for systematic reviews? What makes it so, so, so impressive? Because <laughs> um, you told me real- it's, a, it's the second largest group relative to other committees or other groups that you have within the library association. Yeah, we have almost 700 members. I think the reason one, systematic reviews are super fun to do. This is also a skill that librarians are really, reviews, as you probably know, are just getting more and more popular. And medical professions are showing up at a lot of universities and also at, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And right, there's lots of places that people are doing literature review type research. And so, and librarians are really important to that process. And so more and more librarians are being asked to participate. And so we want to be good at this for our clinicians, for our researchers. And so there's a lot of sharing of knowledge. We are doing a whole, one of our librarians here, I've invited her to come speak about including gray literature in their systematic reviews and like how to find that. So it's just a way for us to, a little bit of shop talk and a little bit of uh, some commiseration. And also this is what's happening on the sort of bleeding edge. This is what people are doing. Like is AI there yet? Can we use AI yet to do systematic reviews? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I've had a couple of teams ask me recently, and I'm like, not yet. It's getting there, but we're a couple of years out. So that's, those kinds of things. No, that's really awesome. I think systematic reviews are very valuable. And so having the right people in the room to do them, especially your your dedicated, amazing librarian is, is important. So I want to thank you for coming on the thank show to so talk much. about it today. Thank you so much. Uh, This is really fun. I will come back and talk as long as you want me to. (laughs) I will invite you again. Okay. (laughs) All right, everyone. You've heard it from Layla Ledbetter talking to you about how to do systematic reviews in the best way possible. Layla, if people have questions and they just want to connect with you, how can they reach you? You may go to the Duke University Medical Center Library's website and you may find me there in the staff list. We also have a guide on systematic reviews that's pretty popular. If you Google Duke systematic reviews, you can reach us that way. And we are happy to answer any questions that you have about the process and direct you to resources on how to learn how to do that. There's a Coursera course done by Johns Hopkins. That's fantastic. So there's lots of places we can direct you if you'd like to learn more. Sounds good. Well, thank you so much, Layla. You're welcome. Bye. All right, everyone. Have a great time. We'll see you again on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do healthcare.